Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NYC Real Estate Podcast. I'm Mark Levine. I'm your host. I'm also one of the owners of EBMG, a New York City area property management company. If you're new to the podcast, we cover a lot of real estate topics that affect the New York area, the New York City area, Long Island, Westchester. Uh, happy to have you here. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us directly at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Today is a solo show. I'm by myself. Usually I like to have somebody to bounce a uh, conversation off of, especially when they're experts in the field. But there are a few things that came across my desk this week that I wanted to put out there and give everybody the information. If you haven't subscribed yet to the show, we'd love to for you to do that. If you could share it, that would be even better. Uh, the more ears on this podcast, the better. And it's always my pleasure to get information out to everybody that's interested. Um, so a few of the different topics are one hits New York State, one hits Westchester, and the, the other really hits co-op law in general. Um, why don't I start with the Westchester uh, piece of information? So this comes directly from an email that I got from Smith Bus. Smith, Buss, and Jacobs LLP, their attorneys in um, the New York area. And it's really affecting everybody in Westchester that's in a co-op, purchasing a co-op, selling the co-op. You get the idea. So the cooperative disclosure law is now in effect in Westchester County. And what's important about this is, you know, when you go around in the area and you see what different pockets of either borough, you know, maybe not so much boroughs because they're all New York City related, but different counties, um, what they adopt could be seen as a, um, a timeline feature that will show up for maybe the city or, you know, general areas of New York. Um, so they amended local law 2018-11 and, and imposes new timetables and guidelines on co-op boards when developing application forms for potential purchasers, reviewing completed purchase applications, and accepting or denying applicants. It was effective on August 1st, so it's brand new, and impl implementation became mandatory August 16th. So we are filming this uh, September 10th. It's been almost a month since this came out. It's only applying right now to Westchester, let me put that out there, but similar laws have been introduced in New York City and New York State for years, and it's maybe only a matter of time that it's going to be uh, on our desk for those of us that really focus in on the New York City area. So it requires that all co-op purchase application forms contain a cover sheet, including the following language. And I'm going to also put this language in the documentation of the episode so you could see in the description, all of that, and you could take it. Article two of chapter 700 of the laws of Westchester County known as the Westchester County Fair Housing Law prohibits discrimination in housing accommodations on the basis of a person or persons actual or perceived race, color, religion, age, national origin, alienage, or citizenship status, ethnicity, familial status, creed, gender, sexual orientation, marital status, disability, source of income, or status as a victim of domestic violence, sexual abuse, or stalking. Section 700.21-A of the Westchester County Fair Housing Law governs applications to purchase shares of stock in Cooperative Housing Corporation and applies to this application. Under this section, the Cooperative Housing Corporation is required to comply with the following deadlines. Within 15 days of the receipt of this application, the Cooperative Housing Corporation must either acknowledge that it has received a complete application or shall notify you of any defect in the application. If you are notified of any defect in the application within 15 days of the receipt of the corrected application, the Cooperative Housing Corporation must either acknowledge that it has received a complete application or shall notify you any defect in the application. 
within 60 days. So you see the timeframes 15, 15 and 60 within 60 days of receipt of a complete application. The cooperative housing corporation must approve or deny your application and provide written notice thereof. Here's the important part. If your application is denied, the Cooperative Housing Corporation is required to provide notice to the Westchester County Human Rights Commission, including your contact information. In addition, the application forms must list the minimum financial qualifications that a prospective purchaser must meet to qualify to purchase the shares, including the corporation's preferred minimum income, total assets, and credit score of the purchaser, as well as the preferred maximum debt-to-income ratio and percentage of purchase price being financed. Boards must set a minimum or a maximum for these criteria, but they have full discretion as to what the criteria may be so long as they are listed in the application. So upon receipt of each call-out purchase application, the board of directors must inform the purchaser whether the application is complete within 15 days of receipt, which we just said. If it's incomplete, the board must inform the, uh, inform the purchaser of each defect in the application. And upon receipt of any revised application, the board then must, within another 15 days, either acknowledge receipt of a complete application or inform the purchaser of any uncured defect. The 60 days, we have to send the notice of rejection or approve the application in writing. And as we noted, if it's denied, we have to then also send something to uh, the Westchester County Human Rights Commission stating um, that it was denied and we also have to include uh, the application or the um, the contact information i'm sorry so you can see where we're getting at co-ops primarily over the last few years have really never had to disclose the reasons for a terminate you know, or a disapproval of an application they had pretty fair game to just say your application is denied and we don't have to give any information um, we could see that now in Westchester, especially that we're changing the course of that and showing that there has to be accountability on the, on the co-op side to say, okay, this was turned down and they're putting a specific emphasis on the financial part of what the requirements are to purchase so that we can make sure that any decisions were made financially, because all those covered classes that I had noted before, you know, with age and sex, religion, all of those between the, the federal uh, covered classes and the state covered classes, those, I always tell a board, and I had this conversation with the board the other day, um, you know, if you don't feel that somebody is going to pass the board application based on financials, you don't invite them to the interview, because you know that they're not going to be approved. And opening yourself up to any sort of discrimination possible case that um, the, per the purchaser could deem as something that was discriminatory when in reality, you may have just not felt that the financials were there and it was based on no other decision. It just doesn't put you in a better position as the co-op board to defend yourself in that type of case. Okay, so we've gotten through that, um, the notice and all of that. The notice of the uh, rejection has to have the full legal name and address of the cooperative housing corporation, the full address and the unit number of the unit that has been applied for, the full names, addresses, telephone numbers, and email addresses for the denied applicants and sellers, full names, addresses, telephone numbers, and email addresses for all legal counsel and real estate brokers involved in the transaction, the date of receipt of the initial application, the date of receipt of the completed application, the dates of any interview, the date of rejection, and more importantly, the reason for rejection. 
Um, the new law also requires existing directors to complete two hours of fair housing training every two years. And each new director must complete a minimum of two hours of training within 60 days after joining the board initially. The co-op must maintain records of every member's training and must make the records available to um, the Human Rights Commission upon request. The Human Rights Commission is responsible for publishing an outline of minimum standards for the training, and they were to be available by August 16th. As of now, I don't believe that they have been, uh, which is pretty true for the government. They put deadlines on and then, you know, they come and go. So if the co-op does not comply with the new housing law, the non-compliance could result in a fine of $1,000 for the first offense, $1,500 for the second offense, and $2,000 for a third offense. The Human Rights Commission has one year from the date of the violation to bring the charges. So we really have to be careful about how we're keeping track of all of these applications, um, how they're being communicated to the purchasers and to the sellers. And then as noted, if something is denied, then we have to notify the Human Rights Commission with all of that information. So they're really, as I said before, putting more accountability on the boards, making sure that there's no discrimination. Um, if you take my advice to heart and you don't interview anybody that has an, uh, a financial background that is not within the guidelines set forth by the co-op, and remember, now you have to tell the applicants what the actual guidelines are on the application itself. So it should be pretty cut and dry if somebody comes in and they're not able to meet the standards of the co-op. The next thing that comes into play um, I actually got this from uh, Benjamin Williams over at Rosenberg Estes. He's been on the show before, and it's a change in New York State to the co-op and condo abatement law that starts in 2022 and 2023 season. Um, it all relates to assessed values, the size of your buildings, and more importantly, um, in order to be in the program for the co-op and condo abatement as a building, and this could be a, putting in as a co-op or a condo building, you have to be paying all of your building service employees the applicable prevailing wage. Um, so to get the co-op and condo abatement starting in 2023, a building must either have an assessed value of less than or equal to $60,000 per unit or have an assessed value of $60,000 or uh, from $60,000 to $100,000 per unit and have less than 30 dwelling units or pay all building service employees, the prevailing wage. If a building wants to get it and they have greater than $60,000 per unit and at least 30 dwelling units or an assessed value of greater than $100,000 per unit, it also must pay building employees the prevailing wage. Uh, prevailing wage means the rate of wages and supplemental benefits paid in the locality to workers in the same trade or occupation and annually determined by the fiscal officer in accordance with the provisions of section 234 of the labor law. So um, you can see that we're putting income requirements or expense requirements really on the buildings and build, a building and service employee is categorized to mean any person who is regularly employed at a building who performs work in connection with the care or maintenance of such building. It includes, but is not limited to watchmen, guard, doorman, building cleaners, porters, handyman, janitor, gardener, groundskeeper, elevator operator and starter, window cleaner. It does not include people that are regularly scheduled to work fewer than eight hours per week in the building. Um, so that's you know an important part of that as well. If you have any questions on this, I'm not the expert on this part. I would say 
you know, get in touch with Benjamin Williams, B Williams at Rosenberg Um, he's been a great source. He actually does some of the tax tertiary work for some of our clients and he's really in, in tune. And if you have an opportunity to go back to, um, one of our earlier episodes and just search out in the title for Benjamin Williams, you'll, you'll have a great episode, have a great episode where we talked about all of these things in the tax tertiary process and how it's not a, it's not a science, you know, you're, you're basically going in front of an individual pleading your case that your assessed value should be lower than it is. Um, and you hope for the best and it's a 50, 50, uh, make out, you know, with that in terms of how they'll, uh, how they'll treat you. If it, it'll be favorably for you or not. Um, the next piece of information and the last is from Habitat Magazine, which is a great article, uh, a great periodical. It's monthly. They also have an online presence. We do a lot of articles with them, um, put a lot of quotes in there. It's at habitatmag.com. And it was a newsletter focusing on the objectionable conduct of shareholders and how you can evict the proprietary leases and evict them from the co-op corporation and you could effectively take away their shares. Uh, objectionable conduct in uh, past years has really meant in you know excessive noise, being a disturbance to the community. Um, if you've had any hoarding situations that completely go unresolved that lead to um, unsanitary conditions and it could lead to you know a whole host of issues if somebody is uh, routinely flooding out your neighbors like these are all um, objectionable conduct issues that could be brought to court but one thing that we're seeing is and I've, I've run into this too you know in our management of condos is litigious shareholders that just at any chance will sue the corporation, will sue the managing agent, and it's just causing fees upon fees to build up over a period of years. Um, so the courts have recently put out a decision um, that they were able to terminate a tenancy on the grounds of objectionable conduct. The board acted after the shareholder's husband in this case, and there was a 800, the case was 800 grand concourse owners versus Thompson. Um, the, the husband uh, who resided in the unit with the shareholder filed at least 15 lawsuits against the co-op. They were frivolous, or at least the board described them as frivolous and noted that in two of the cases, the court had categorized the plaintiff as a vexatious litigant and prohibited him from filing further court papers without obtaining special permission from the judge. Um, so in addition to costing the cooperative substantial legal fees, the board asserted that the frequent litigation caused the cooperative to lose its insurance coverage. So there's a sliding scale or there's a, a you know, the snowball effect, um, you know, running down the hill of, you know, you have somebody that's completely litigious and, and won't stop at anything to bring a lawsuit against the building. That's going to have a negative effect both on uh, the co-ops reserve or operating funds and um, how fiscally uh, prepared they are for, you know, the coming years because they're draining their bank accounts. It's also possibly going to affect sales because we've seen that people like to read, you know, they should read minutes when they're coming into a building, their attorney should do due diligence. And now we're seeing that insurance coverage will just, uh, you know, evaporate. And if insurers are not willing to insure the building, that definitely is not a positive for anybody living in the building, anybody on the board. Um, so they've come back and they've said that uh, objectionable conduct can 
basically include, you know, frivolous lawsuits and the shareholder could be removed. So um, I would definitely recommend going on to habitatmag.com if you want to take a look at this um, newsletter that they sent out. Uh, just do a search if it's not on the front page for objectionable conduct. Um, also subscribe to their newsletters. They come out, I think, every week. So it's, it's, it's a lot of helpful information if you're interested in this space, just like I am. So that's it. That Those are the three main issues that I wanted to bring to your attention for this week. Um, there's a lot going on in the real estate world right now. A lot of changes. There always are, but we're trying to keep on top of everything. We'll keep bringing it to you on our podcast and on our YouTube channel uh, when we're, we're able to. But that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Again, if you want to email the show, NYC Real Estate Podcast at gmail.com, NYC Real Estate Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Mark Levine. You can call me directly, 212-335-2723, extension 201. Again, 212-335-2723, extension 201. Love talking to people who email and call. So never uh, delay if you want to talk to me. Shout out.